All right, everyone, welcome to today's newest episode of Heal Thyself. Thank you for checking in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing. Let me tell you something. Today's show is going to be amazing. I say it every show, and I hope I deliver, but today is going to be particularly amazing because I have gotten, since I started this show, uh, a push and inquiries, and please, Dr. G, can you do a show on hair loss? So I'm going to do a really nice knowledge bomb for you all go over a really, really important product that is becoming increasingly popular in today's society. And then we have an amazing guest coming in, a colleague of mine. I graduated with him, one of the smartest guys I know, and he's going to be dropping some really good bombs. So without further ado, let us jump in to the knowledge bomb. All right, so when it comes to hair loss or hair thinning, there's a few different points that we need to cover. Because hair loss and hair thinning is not, is not limited to one cause. There's so many other parts to it. And unfortunately, dermatologists have a really small toolbox for helping those with hair loss or hair thinning. So I remember I worked at a pharmacy years ago, and there was this lady who was postmenopausal. She kept coming in, and she's like, hey, doc, what supplement can I take that will grow my hair back? I said, okay, well, it's not that simple. First, we need to find out why you're losing your hair. So for her, it was postmenopausal stuff, but she was a microcosm of what people look for, right? What supplement can I take for this? Should I start taking collagen? Should I start taking this and that? The problem is we have to find out what is going on. So when it comes to hair loss, what we know is for males, we have male pattern baldness, and at the age of 25, two-thirds of the men will have appreciable hair loss by that time. At the age of 50, 85% of men will have hair loss. And this is linked, pretty much linked, we know it's to the male sex hormones. When it comes to females, there's about 30 million women out there who are suffering with hair loss. And these patterns happen particularly over time. You know, we lose hair when we get older, but theirs might not be directly linked to hormones all the time, okay? So th that's a little bit more complicated when it comes to female hair loss. Um, typically, we lose about 100 hairs each day and when it comes to hair loss, it can be diffuse or focal. Diffuse meaning pattern throughout the hair, the whole head, or focal in, di in different spots. So when it comes to diffuse, what happens is a dermatologist will do this test called the hair pull test, where they'll grab like 40 or 60 hairs and they'll pull. And when they pull, if more than six come out, that's usually a sign that you're actively shedding your hair. So in male and female pattern hair loss, what we see is diffuse hair loss. That's what it is. Think about a guy losing his hair when he gets older, it's diffuse, right? It's throughout the head. There's other types of hair loss, something called diffuse alopecia areata. You might have heard of alopecia. That's an autoimmune disease. It can be both diffuse and focal. And then there's telogen effluvium. This is when, you know when you get really bad news or you know someone who's gotten bad news and they've, they've started losing their hair. They're really stressed. This is bad news, stress, traumas, but also eating disorders, fevers, childbirth, chronic illness, surgery, crash dieting, hypothyroidism, medications. This is when you have a huge influx of stress hormone and that puts your, the, the phase of your hair, it, it, it pauses it into a resting phase and what happens is the hair starts falling out. And this is when you lose about 30 to 50% in months. And again, that's the cause, the influx of stress hormone. So again, if you go to a dermatologist and you're losing your hair and you're getting corticosteroids for this, that might be a problem, right? You have to find out the cause. Then when you think about focal, right? Different, just a very specific part of your hair that's being lost. There's alopecia, as I mentioned, that's an autoimmune disease. Again, it could be focal or diffuse. There's tinea capitis. If you've heard of ringworm, you can get it in your head too. It's not necessarily a worm. It's not a worm at all. It's a fungus and it's highly contagious. That's when you're sharing like a hat or a bed sheet or a towel or a pillow. And what happens is the infection goes into the scalp at the hair shafts and then the hair starts falling off. Really itchy, so that's the way you'd really differentiate between that. There's traction alopecia if you're pulling your hair or you have braids or things like that. Trichotillomania, which is folks with a mental disorder that are pulling out their hair. That, those are more obvious, you'll know. But when you start losing your hair and not knowing the cause, and you don't really feel stressed, then we started, We gotta start digging deeper. Okay, so for men and women, when it comes to pattern hair loss, usually they're given something called minoxidil, which is called Rogaine, and it's a vasodilator. It increases blood flow to the scalp. In the Journal of Dermatological Treatment, curcuma aeroreganosa, which is a form of turmeric, right, curcumin, basically was shown to help Rogaine boost its efficacy. 
So you should always ask your dermatologist if you are using this Rogaine, that it, it, if it's a good idea to pair it with curcuma because it can increase the efficacy of Rogaine, which is crazy. I wish all dermatologists knew about this. For men, finasteride, which is Propecia, is really one of the main things that are given for male, male pattern hair loss. And I can tell you a story. When I was in, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I thought that I was losing my hair. It was actually from all the stress of finals and getting in and taking the dental exam and going into dental school. Like that was a really stressful part of my life. And it wasn't male pattern hair loss, but it was more of the stressful one. Remember I told, I, I was just talking about, but I was given Propecia for that and it didn't really do much, but I kept taking it and taking it and taking it. Well, one of the side effects of Propecia is you're just really blah, right? It, it reduces your hormones. And I remember just, just feeling like no libido, no testosterone, no strength, just dragging. I kid you not, in two months I got off of it and I was back to myself. Interestingly enough, when I did more research, what I found is that, and, I, and that, would have, that was my fault, not being an informed consumer, but basically what happens is as it blocks 5-alpha reductase, that's the enzyme that creates DHT, which is implicated in pat, male pattern baldness, what happens is it can reduce your risk of prostate cancer but increase your risk of pro aggressive prostate cancer. So now I'm over here with an increased risk of aggressive prostate cancer. Anyway, the beautiful thing is that there are other natural 5-alpha reductase inhibitors out there like, ask your doctor about EGCG, that's from green tea, salt palmetto, panax ginseng, nettle. I also mentioned that the female hair loss can be something called androgenic hair loss, right? It can be really pushed by testosterone. But if it is, Usually there's a, there's a profile to it. You'll have hair loss, but you'll also have something called hirsutism where you have male pattern hair growth in places that it shouldn't be in your body. Also with acne, especially in the jawline, this is gonna be suggestive of something that is more testosterone driven and menstrual irregularities. So what do we do, right? You start losing your hair, what do we do? Where do we go? For me, I'm not being biased. I just know the efficacy of how this works. Go see a naturopathic doctor, a licensed naturopathic doctor. Later in the show, we'll teach you even how to find one. I've spoke about it before, but we'll refresh it. You have to, you have to see because you, you need a full workup. Unfortunately, the dermatologist toolbox is very small, so you're not going to get many tools to find out. Well, to, one to find out what is the cause of the hair loss, but you're not going to get many tools to treat it in the first place, right? They have the two big guns, which I mentioned, Rogaine and Propecia and then corticosteroids. So you have to be worked up properly because there could be different causes. Now, if it's hormonal, if the cause of the hair loss is hormonal, you gotta make sure your endocrinologist is testing free testosterone, DHEA, LH, FSH, progesterone, estradiol, estrone, cortisol, DHT, at minimum, they need to be testing this, right? If they're not, then you gotta go to a new practitioner and get a full comprehensive hormone panel, preferably something like a dried urine one from the Dutch test. And make sure your insulin levels are under control, right? Because there is a link between ins insulin resistance and hair loss. So really the hormonal picture needs to be seen, not just your male and female sex hormones, but also everything else, right? You gotta see the full picture. And I'm gonna go into the next one, thyroid, right? Another hormone. Hair follicles are influenced by thyroid hormone. If you're experiencing hypothyroid, you're really at risk for losing your hair, right? So if you're suspecting thyroid issues and your endocrinologist is only doing TSH, T4, free T3 and free T4, and not doing T3 or reverse T3 or antibodies, autoantibodies, then that's a big issue, right? Because in the conventional model, you're only gonna have hypothyroid if your TSH is high and your T4 is low. But that completely disregards subacute hypothyroid, right? Subclinical hypothyroid, something that something where people can absolutely suffer from hypothyroid and on paper, right, in their blood, you're not gonna find it. That's a big issue because then you're not gonna be treated for it. So for me, it's important to see the full picture. If you have abnormal thyroid numbers, you've gotta look for the root cause, right? Just taking thyroid medicine isn't enough. You gotta look for the root cause. Make sure your doctor's investigating the root cause of the autoimmune disease, it's usually Hashimoto's. If they're not looking at heavy metals, environmental pollutants, infections, that's a problem, right? Thyroid's very delicate to heavy metals, especially when it comes to the halogen group of heavy metals. Chlorine, fluorine, right? That's in water as chloride or fluoride, and bromine, which is brominated foods. So also I mentioned environmental pollutants. Make sure you're getting complete blood count because anemia is associated, iron deficiency anemia is associated with hair loss. Make sure your iron's good. Nutrients, you gotta get your vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin B checked. Minerals, iron, magnesium, copper, you've got to get it checked. 
if you're having crash dieting, you got to have more stable, more stability. Make sure you're working with someone to help you get on a regular diet because a crash dieting is really going to start pushing that too. Getting whole foods, eating lots of plants. Get with a doctor who can do nutrient testing for you instead of just shooting in the dark. If you're eating all these wonderful nutrients but you're not absorbing them, that's a big problem too. So your gut health is really important for your hair health. Absorbing, make sure you're absorbing, chewing properly, being present. You gotta have enough stomach acid, right? So if you're having issues like SIBO or heartburn, go back to my episode on heartburn, you may not have enough stomach acid. So these, some of these micronutrients need stomach acid to be absorbed and you gotta make sure your, your intestine is basically absorbing too, all right? So look into infections, dysbiosis, inflammation, because if you have gut permeability, you better believe you're not absorbing all of your nutrients. And if you're stressed, remember I talked about stress, those stress hormones having an effect on the hair follicle, you gotta look for the cause, you gotta get to the root cause, meditation, grounding, journaling, yoga, exercise, ground, uh, breath work, all really important stuff. You gotta give your adrenals love, look into adaptogens, I say it in pretty much every other episode. So, and lastly, if you have an infection, that's relatively easy to fix. Like if you have a ringworm, uh, any ND, or a dermatologist or functional doctor can fix it, maybe with different modalities, but that's pretty easy to fix. So there are some of the major causes of hair loss. Again, if you're experiencing any sort of hair loss, I think it's very important to look for a practitioner who can work you up and look at all of the avenues of hair loss, right? And ask you with a full, complete interview when it started, how it started, look at it and be able to differentiate, okay, is this diffuse, is it focal, what's the cause? Because no one, wants to be losing their hair actively, okay? I understand. So that's that. Let us go to the product review. I'm really excited to talk about this one because this is up and coming. Actually, it's booming right now. So let's get to the product review. All right, here's the hottest thing that I need to talk about. When I, all right, when I became a vegan, I there wasn't many veggie burgers out there or burgers in general, right? There was, there was a few and they weren't even that healthy. They were processed, they were not organic, and you know how I feel about both. But now what's booming are these uh, fake meat burgers. And I really wanted to bring them to the surface because I do get questions, hey, is it healthy? Should I eat it every day? If you all know me, you know I stopped eating meat 11 years ago now. But the thing about it is that I'm an advocate for veganism, of course. I'm an advocate for the environment, but I'm also an advocate for eating whole food and eating healthy whole food. So if you're eating these at the expense of good quality food, then that's a problem. So without further ado, let me review some of these hot topic burgers, right? I didn't bring any with me, but I, but I actually, actually ate one of them yesterday because I figured, how can I come here and talk about a burger if I never eat it? So Impossible Burger. The first and foremost one. I will say this, it's processed, right? There's different ingredients in there and here they are. Water, textured wheat protein, coconut oil, potato protein, natural flavors, 2% or less of something called leg hemoglobin, right? It's leg hemoglobin and that's from soy, uh, yeast extract, salt, soy protein, konjac gum, xanthan gum, and then vitamin B1, B2, B12, uh, different B vitamins, all the B vitamins basically, and zinc and niacin or zinc. So what we have is a burger and it's gained a lot of popularity and I'm happy that it's doing things for the environment and uh, animal welfare. The problem is it's pretty uh, processed, particularly when I see something like textured wheat protein. 20% of people have gluten sensitivity, so you may not even know it, but you'd be eating this and you may not be reacting well. I don't like the ambiguity of natural flavors. You know how I feel about that because it's a big umbrella term for flavors that can be derived from different things. It doesn't even have to be natural. Natural flavors can be derived from synthetic. Remember that. There's little loopholes within that. But what my, what, one of the concerns I have something here for, for this burger is the Lego or leg hemoglobin. For the leg hemoglobin, it's coming from soy. And this, this is basically what Impossible Foods does. It's, it's what makes them special, right? The, the burger tastes the way that it does. It creates heme. And heme is what makes animal or cow burgers taste the way it does. So what they do is they take from the root nodules of the soy plant, they extract it. They take a strain of genetically engineered yeast and they add these, the soy leg hemoglobin gene. And what happens is through fermentation, the company is able to isolate that heme 
and then add it onto here. The problem is it's a very new form of protein. Already we know it's processed because I just named, I just talked about the process of what it takes. So when it comes to the body, the body does not like processed stuff, right? It's, it's, it's unknown to the body and it does its best to break it down, but it recruits a lot of our vitamins and minerals. So when you eat processed food, it's like a nutrient sucker, I call it, because it, there's so much needed to break it down. So when it comes to the Impossible Burger, we don't really know how the body's gonna start reacting to this new protein. That's another problem I have with the burger. But the biggest problem I have particularly is that when they did the study on it, they found glyphosate in it. And you know how I feel about glyphosate. One of my first shows was in it. Glyphosate, the reason why we avoid GMOs, glyphosate. Why was it found in the Impossible Burger, right? Because they, are, they claim to be non-GMO. And that's a big problem because not only did they find glyphosate, but they also found AMP. This is the metabolite. Big issues. We have a burger here that's processed, highly processed. We, I told you about the novel form of protein, the leg hemoglobin protein from soy. That's novel. We're going to open up to allergies for people who never had it. And then they found glyphosate. Look, this, with that said, if you're out with your friends and you have a burger and it's an impossible burger, great. Just don't make it a daily part of your diet, period. Okay, that's, that's, that's one that I just wanted to really talk about because it is booming, right? I should have been an investor in day one, but you know what? I don't believe in it, so I wouldn't have invested. So then we have the Boca Burger. Boca Burger is, this was actually the, one of the first ones I started eating when I turned vegan because it's pretty much all that was there. Now, burger, Boca Burgers are horrible. And we have one, we have the turkey veggie Boca Burger uh, that has water, soy protein, wheat gluten, uh, methyl cellulose, corn oil, onion powder, garlic powder, caramel color, yeast extract, malt extract, which contains gluten, natural flavor, and spices. The problem with this is it's just as processed as the Impossible Burger. Doesn't taste as good, I'm sure. But the, the thing is, most of their burgers do not have any non-GMO label. And what I see from the get-go is GMO foods, right? The soy, the wheat, and the corn, the corn oil. So that's a big issue. And then the natural flavors, which we don't know where it's coming from. Um, I never felt good eating these. And it makes sense. As I learn more about nutrition and environmental medicine, it's just something that I would stay away from. They do have a original turkey veggie burgers, and it says vegan. What they they... they they don't use genetically modified soy, but still, it's got the corn oil, right? And it's got the wheat. Please don't buy Boca Burgers, all right? That's, that's, that's all I'm gonna say about that. How about the Beyond Burger? And the Beyond Burger now is the one that I had yesterday for the first time. They say they're non-GMO. They say they have no gluten and no, or, or any soy. They have water, pea protein isolate, canola oil, coconut oil, rice protein, natural flavors, cocoa butter, mung bean protein, methyl cellulose, apple extract, potato starch, vinegar, lemon juice, sunflower, lecithin, pomegranate, fruit powder, beet juice. That's too many. Too many ingredients. Seriously. That's too many ingredients to go into a burger, period. It tasted all right. But again, what I always say is this. You have to make sure that your food as much as you can is organic, right? I, I found a passion in learning about environmental medicine and pesticides and herbicides, insecticides, and seeing what it does to us and our microbiome, okay? As a rule of thumb, you're gonna see most of these processed foods that don't have any label, Beyond Burger says it's non-GMO, but don't have any organic label, what they're gonna do is use a lot of these conventional foods. Now, what I see here is apple extract. We know that apples are something that have to be organic. You should never be eating conventional apples because it's one of the most highly sprayed fruits. I see pomegranate. Again, something that sometimes as much as we can get organic, but one thing I don't like is this rice protein, right? This is why it shouldn't be part of your diet. The rice protein, I did a whole show on arsenic and rice. So if you're eating a lot of rice, right, you eat this burger and then you go home and eat brown rice or white rice, whatever it is, then you're bringing in the heavy metals to your body. And I really want people to be aware about what the power of what arsenic does in the body. It's nasty. And I did a whole show, so go back on it and listen. But the one thing I don't like is that they use canola oil. There's no need to use canola oil. They say it's non-GMO. Okay. Uh, but what is the process? It's expeller pressed. Do I know whether or not they're using hexane? Regardless, I don't think canola oil is a healthy oil. It should be used, period. Use any other oil. I would love to see avocado oil. That would make me a lot more happy. Anyway, Beyond Burger, it tasted good, but I'm going to be honest. I have a stomachache today, all day. 
Is it the Beyond Burger? I don't know. So now we're getting to the better ones. Uh, we have the Amy's All-American Organic Vegetable Veggie Burger, non-GMO. This is the one that I moved to after I, st I stopped eating the Boca Burgers. Amy's is nice. It just has a lot of ingredients. It has a, a ton of ingredients, and it has some inflammatory oils like safflower and sunflower oil, which are more a high, higher in omega-6. Um, and it uses textured soy protein. It's a little bit more processed than I'd like. Just a ton of ingredients. So if you're sensitive to, I, I would urge, I'm not going to read them all, but I would urge people when they go see Amy's, if they know they have issues with walnuts, please be sure because there's a lot. I also don't like that it's not gluten-free. I, I prefer to stay away from gluten. Most people I meet do better when they do, and this has some wheat in here. But one that I do love better, and this is probably one of my favorites, is the Organic Sunshine Burger. You can find this at Whole Foods, as you, as you can find Amy's too. And the Sunshine Burgers are really nice because now we're getting to the ones that have basically, you know, 10 ingredients at most. This, the one that I looked at was the mushroom, shiitake mushroom, that has cooked brown rice. I just spoke about brown rice. Ground raw sunflower seeds, carrots, cooked quinoa, shiitake mushrooms, onions, garlic, sea salt. So we don't have any of those inflammatory oils. They're not using safflower or sunflower oil. They're not using canola oil. One thing I don't like is that it, the first ingredient is brown rice. I would have rather it be you know, black beans or, or kidney beans or some other type of lentil, some other type of starter ingredient here. So again, this isn't something that you'd be eating every single day, particularly if you have a high rice diet, but it is one of my favorite burgers because it's organic and non-GMO. And lastly, there was the Engine 2 one. The Engine 2 ones are okay, okay. They're non-GMO, but they should be having an organic label because they use oats. And oats are one of the crops that glyphosate is used as a desiccant or a drying agent. So you want to at least be sure before you buy them as an informed consumer that there's better burgers out there. So again, to reiterate, Boca's crap, impossible, you know, hardly ever eat it. But if you're out with your friends, fine. I don't like it. Beyond Burger, it ain't too good. I'm sorry. It ain't good at all. I ate it. It tasted good, but it gave me a stomach ache. And then we have the Amy's better sunshine is the best and uh, i tried to make that as straightforward as possible i really hope that helped if you go look for your burger and you go to whole foods now you have some direction i really hope that this was helpful and you can share this with your friends so i am too excited to start getting this special guest going so let's let's bring him in already and uh, have this conversation All right, everyone. Today's special guest is a friend of mine, a colleague of mine. We went to school together. We graduated together. And I'm always keeping in touch with him, following his work. I thought him very valuable to bring on, talk about all the important things he's doing for the world. So everybody, please welcome Dr. Rob Kachko. Thank you for having me, Dr. G. Do I call you Christian, Dr. G? Dr. I don't know. What, what did you know me as initially? You were Christian. Okay, then you can call me Christian. You were Christian. Yeah. And who never had to show up to class, but somehow always had a 4-0. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's who you were. I just, uh, I just, my, my thing was like, I found it more efficient to study by myself. Me too. And to like, do, like learn by myself because I, I can't sit and hear someone talk over and over and over. Yeah. People like learn differently. Right. I mean, my challenge was I was sitting in class reading a textbook right in front of the professor. Oh, you did. You just wouldn't waste your time. So yeah. You, <laughs> I just didn't you were go. more efficient with it. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but at the end of the day, we both graduated. Graduated like a 4-0. Amen. So did you. <laughs> and uh, so, so tell me, Rob, you're here in New York. That's right. Right. You you uh, you didn't leave the East Coast. No. Nope. Right to New York City. Right after right after med school. Okay. And t can you tell us what you've been doing? Sure. Yeah. So, I think I put my sort of professional life since graduation into three buckets. Really, there's the advocacy work that we're doing with the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. I'm the incoming president for the ANP. Um, and so let's talk about naturopathic medicine because there's a lot of interest, there's a lot of need right now, and there's a lot of sort of consumer demand for that. So we should certainly talk about that. Um, I'm in practice. I practice at InnerSource Health mm -hmm. right across from Penn Station in Manhattan. Uh, some combination of cardiometabolic risk reduction, Alzheimer's work, and then a large percentage of my, of my patient population really deals with a lot of chronic pain. Mm -hmm which segued a couple of years ago into the third bucket of what I've been working on, which is a healthcare technology startup called Tribe Rx, where essentially we're looking at the role that social determinants of health have on people's health outcomes. We understand, um, and really when we were looking to build this company, we understood that when people don't get the support they need, when they're not heard, when they're not understood, their health outcomes suffer, um, and especially true for chronic pain. So I was seeing that 
a lot of the pain patients who are coming in to see me, um, they probably wouldn't have been in so much pain if they felt more support in their lives, if they felt like they had a community of people who could walk the journey towards sustainable wellness with them. Mm. Um, and so we set out to use this combination of, of healthcare technology, human connection, we connect people with lived experience of pain, but also self-management curriculum to empower people to take charge of their own health. I see, that, and I find that very unique. I remember when you first started with that, what was it, a year ago, two years ago? Okay, two and a half. Two and a half years ago, <laughs> that, that flew. But I think it's really important because one thing that we miss as healthcare practitioners across the board, functional and naturopathic, just conventional, is the importance of community hmm. and like that sense of purpose and connection. Um, I'm sure you've dove in. Have you seen good data behind what connection in human, and like and basically tribe society, hmm would do for pain outcomes or other outcomes that you saw? Anything interesting that you can talk yeah, to? it's tremendous. And, and so I think first it's useful to put that into the context of where we are in 2019. Mm. If we look a couple decades ago um, in the 70s and 80s, maybe 10, 11, up to 20% of people would describe themselves as having no one to turn to, as having a perceived sense of social isolation. In, um, I think, 2016, AARP did a study looking at seniors. Up to 43% of this most vulnerable population felt like they didn't have enough support in their lives. In 2019, more people feel like they have no one to turn to in a time of emergency than even one person. So that's, you know, picture you get out of surgery, you have an emergency procedure, someone's got to pick you up because you can't get there. More people these days feel like um, they don't have anyone to turn to. So we're not heading in the right direction. And then you would think that healthcare is, is the medium through which we can actually resolve these things, give people the support they need as we help them heal in other ways. The challenge is because of all this really tremendous technology we have as far as precision medicine and nutrigenomics and lipidomics and all those mm -hmm. all those different omics, we now understand that within short order, in two, three, four years, you're going to go to your primary care doctor. They're going to have your genetic information. They're going to have your blood work. You're going to put your symptoms into a symptom questionnaire. You never have to talk to an actual person to get the most precise care you need. So there's a lot of value there. But the challenge is, even before that was true, medicine was already a pretty dehumanizing experience. And so we set out um, to make it a more humanizing experience because, to your point, we understand that it impacts health outcomes. Mm -hmm. It's as dangerous to be lonely as it is to smoke 15 cigarettes per day. Mm. It's two times more dangerous to be lonely than it is to be obese. It blows away the impacts of air pollution and the impacts of alcoholism. And in this uh, time, in 2019, um, what we really see is that we're, we're having increases in these sort of deaths of despair, liver cirrhosis from alcoholism, opioid addiction, that's a main issue, and that's something that we're trying to tackle because it obviously fits into the pain world. Um, but other diseases also go up. So if someone feels lonely, their risk of heart disease goes up 29%. Their risk of cancer goes up 25%. I know you do a lot of work with women with breast cancer. Yeah, I the, saw that. The journal Cancer did a, put out a, a study in 2017, I think it was April 2017, where they followed women for 20 years in a longitudinal mm -hmm. study before that. And what they found was that women who had the least support over that 20 years after breast cancer diagnosis had a 69% higher likelihood of dying from all causes. They had a 43% higher likelihood of recurrence of their breast cancer over that 20 years. Mm -hmm. One factor alone speaking to the ecology of people's lives. So that's really true for all health outcomes. From an evolutionary perspective, that makes sense as well, right? We're tribal by nature. That's why the company is called Tribe mm -hmm. RX. It was more dangerous to be separated from our tribe than to be without food or water for even mm -hmm. a couple of days, right? That's that was more dangerous to our lives. And our body's uh, main goal is to protect itself, no mm -hmm. matter what. Um, when it comes to pain, that's especially true. So, uh, really, truly, our brains, in in their effort to keep us safe and to stay away from things that might harm us, can't really tell the difference between physical pain and social pain. If you're at a party and someone punches you in the shoulder repeatedly and it becomes chronic pain, it would be the same thing as if that person excluded you from a group conversation. Mm. It lights up those same brain regions, the ACC, the prefrontal cortex, all those brain regions that we know are impacted by things like meditation are impacted in the wrong direction by social isolation and social exclusion. And the challenge is those aren't the brain regions that we um, we look at for things like, well, where is the pain and what's the quality of the pain? But it's our suffering around the pain. Mm. It's our need to help ourselves and to fix whatever it is that's broken. And so we have 
people coming in to see us through the startup, but also through their patient care, people feel like their bodies are broken. They're being told that the language that uh, we used about MRIs and discs and and x-rays, yeah. being told that our bodies are broken and they feel like they can't help themselves. And so this creates an ecosystem of people really shutting down into themselves and mm -hmm. that only exacerbates their issues. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a major challenge. We're trying to solve that by connecting people so that they feel like they're not alone, using technology in a, uh, in a human-centered way to help them understand what it is um, that they need to be doing to help themselves and to offer the type of self-management education that they can actually use to empower themselves, like I said. Uh, but the technology isn't a means to an end. An app never took away someone's pain. Yeah. Um, an app never helped someone make behavioral changes. And so yeah. that's where we're using people and peers, peer coaches, to do that. That's beautiful. I think uh, I, I don't think anyone's really doing that. And that's the most important thing when it comes to the comprehensive thing that we do as naturopathic doctors is the holism, everything mm -hmm. from the physical body to everything else. I saw that with breast cancer. I saw also uh, something with yoga, uh, women doing yoga and then having supportive groups after, having better outcomes than those just doing yoga and or just not doing anything, mm -hmm. um, which makes sense because, you know, like you said, we're tribal, evolutionary speaking, we're tribal beings. We speak to each other, we connect, right? We, are, we grow in community. Mm. So um, with that said, so you're saying on this app, someone can open it up and they'll connect with someone who is going through, quote unquote, the same thing that they're going through? Yeah, yeah, the difference is where possible. Now our goal has always been never to charge people for support. That makes no sense. The healthcare system, insurance companies, large hospital systems should provide this. So where possible, we can actually connect people in person and get that covered for free for them. And so we're doing that uh, in a couple of ecosystems, especially um, in places like in the Bronx and New York where there's a major opioid epidemic. and. Uh, patients are, are dealing with this issue where um, their doctors are, they have legitimate pain, first of all, and their doctors are concerned about prescribing the medication that they've been on for 20 or 30 years that quite literally has changed their physiology, has changed their bodies. Um, so we're offering in-person in supports. The doctor can feel safer in prescribing the medication that the patient needs and maybe doing a, a slower voluntary wean. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that does happen, and so patients, that's available now. We can connect people with peers now starting in the Bronx, we really need a lot of um, hands-on sort of hyper-local support. So we're partnering with outpatient treatment programs mm. to make sure that it's not just, you know, definitely not an app, but even just one doctor's or one company's opinion. It's a whole ecosystem of support. Um, in other places where we don't have that broad spectrum of support, we're offering it remotely. But the goal is to get people to connect in person as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges that happens with something like isolation and the people who need it the most it's sort of paradoxical. It's almost like, uh, you know, companies do a running steps challenge and the people who sign up are the 20% of people who are runners anyway, right? The people who are never going to do it aren't going to sign up. It's the same with isolation. Um, you can't just tell someone, hey, I think you're lonely. Get this app. Yeah. You need to walk people there slowly in a way that's sustainable for them, in a way that's not threatening to them. Mm -hmm. And so we start with um, using technology solely through messaging. We can do that. We start with um, connecting people through video chat and eventually mm -hmm. getting them back into, an, again, an ecosystem that is supportive of their healing. And that takes time, and it takes sometimes um, a lot of empathy and a, and a lot of sort of slow and deliberate yeah, work. patience, man. It takes a lot of patience, and that's bravo to you, man, because some people aren't, or practitioners aren't patient in general, but being able yeah. to follow people through is very important. Um, pain is a whole nother animal, right? Mm. Because there's, it's not just somatic, it can be psychosomatic actually it's for the most part psychosomatic mm. big part of it big chunk of it um so is this something that now you're integrating for all the patients because you're seeing mostly these type of patients right people yeah. who are pain mm -hmm. or have cardiometabolic disease you said you mentioned something about yeah that's sort of the that's the practice to separate the, the practice right in new york city and midtown from what we're doing on a national level mm. um but but yeah it's uh it's important and, and the challenge with pain is we've We've always looked at it from a somatic perspective, right? Mm. It's a structural, it's a biomechanical issue. You know, your knee is damaged. Let's replace the part. Let's fix it. Clearly, we're much more complex beings than that. If you just to take the knee example, I had my ACL repaired, um, I guess a year and a half ago now. If you look at people's x-rays, 
40% of people who are bone on bone where the radiologist says that person probably has pain have no pain at all and vice versa people who have pain if you do an x-ray 15% of people um, who have a lot of pain have perfect joint spacing it doesn't look like there's anything wrong with their knee and so what, what we're interested in is understanding well what is it about the rest of their lives that biopsychosocial model stepping outside of that just biomechanical mm -hmm. biomedical biological model what are the psychosocial impacts so it's how do we think about our pain? How do we move? What do we eat? How do we sleep? What uh, thoughts do we have in general? What are our social connections? Mm -hmm. um, all that matters because you can't quite separate the physical from that psychosocial. Mm -hmm. um, the truth is um, they both impact each other. Rates of depression, anxiety, of course, go up if people have pain, but also vice versa. They're sort of a vicious cycle in and of themselves. Um, but what we also understand is that um, there's such thing as a pain personality. I can tell you on meeting you in the first hour if you're likely to deal with something, something like chronic physical pain, things like fibromyalgia, endometriosis, irritable bowel, they all speak to the same issue even though it's related to the gut mm -hmm. or the uterus or the mm -hmm. muscles, right? Um, and that pain personality really looks like a person who feels like they can't help themselves. So low levels of self-efficacy, um, high levels of hypervigilance, feeling like the world is dangerous. Again, that evolutionary mm, yes. example, separated from the tribe, you need to protect yourselves. How do we protect ourselves? We increase inflammation, we prepare for whatever's coming, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then finally, people who um, tend to take their pain and catastrophize it to, to larger meaning. Well, you know, my back hurts, it means I'll never be able to play with my grandkids again. My back hurts, well, it means that I'll never be able to work my job again. Mm in a very real way that actually increases pain scores. And so mm -hmm. our, our, our idea, and, and the idea that's well validated in the research is you support all those pathways and then you ask someone what their pain is and then you make a prescription. Right. Or then you send them for picture. surgery. Yeah. Because it, it's not a complete, again, ecosystem of yeah. their life. It's not a biopsychosocial approach. And unfortunately, this idea of biopsychosocial that I keep saying, um, it's been very clear in the literature for a long time. Um, people have heard of the gate control theory of pain Melzack and Walls, this famous idea that came out in something like 1965 where they basically said, well, the, the spinal cord controls pain from the body up to the brain. 25 years later, they put out a whole new model called the Neuromatrix model of pain that looked at um, all those other aspects, um, their mental health, the, the way they move, the way they eat, all those other components. Unfortunately, that hasn't translated to clinical practice like that gate control theory has. We're still stuck in this biomechanical model, and, and frankly, it's failing us. If you, look at, um, if you look at just back surgery alone, we would expect about a third of people get better, a third of people stay the same, and a third of people actually get, get worse. There's a, there's a syndrome called failed back surgery syndrome for mm -hmm. a reason, it's super common. And if we ask ourselves why and how are we failing our patients, um, you really have to look at are those the reasons for the surgery necessarily correlating to how people feel. And so if you look at, if you give a bunch of radiologists um, before back surgery, a bunch of images, and they don't know if people have pain or not, if you give them a thousand people who have no pain at all, 80% of those people by age 50 have some degeneration of their disc. 60% mm. of the people have an actual bulge in their disc on MRI that you would think would need to be surgically replaced. 14% of people, something like that, have an actual slippage of their vertebrae. Mm. Any doctor who looks at that image will say, yeah, you probably need to get that fixed. But the fact is these people have no pain at all. And so yeah. unless we're taking that approach, unfortunately, we're not help We're not giving people the, the power they need to help themselves. Uh, you mean a comprehensive approach to someone's health? Yeah. You know, like it, just taking a comprehensive approach would be huge. But you and I both know how that model can work. Um, so I think it's great that integratively you can start pushing this. Hmm. And hopefully, hopefully a lot of these orthopedic surgeons or orthopedic doctors can really start coming on to this because I think it's wonderful work. Um, so so you mentioned you're in uh, Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And so is most of your patient population pain, but you also mentioned you do acupuncture too. Yeah. How does that work with pain? It works incredibly in well. Incredibly yeah. well, yeah. It's, it's Honestly, it's probably, you know, they say sort of you don't choose the types of people you work with, they sort of choose you. And so the early days of my practice was mostly lifestyle medicine for cardiometabolic risk, things like diabetes, hypertension, heart disease really reducing risk, helping people lose weight, reduce their insulin resistance, things like that. Um, and there's still a large subset of my population that I work with, including the Alzheimer's realm, which actually fits into that very neatly, which is a surprise to people. But I think it's because of the acupuncture that the chronic pain
pain started seeing itself in my practice. Mm. Um, and then in working with these patients, I understood acupuncture is an incredible tool to get someone out of pain, but there's so much more. Yeah. And I would find that people would come in and frankly would come in just to talk or just to get a new perspective on it. We sort of offered all the evidence-based stuff and that was around the time that Tribe was coming around. So, so it's some combination of pain and still lifestyle medicine. Okay, that's really cool, that's really cool. So um, you mentioned that, and I remember, man, from like the beginning of school, you were always into like, you know, naturopathic growth and advocacy and yeah. you were the class president. Um, so that carried on after school. And what, what really drives your passion to bringing naturopathic medicine in the way you do to the public? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've had a, a mission since day one. It's kind of happenstance, like you raise your hand, like the first week of school, like oh, I'll run for class president. Who knows what that's gonna lead to? Um, but what it did is it, it, it turned into a real passion for ensuring that, um, first of all, naturopathic medicine is a household name, that every person, when they think about their healthcare, thinks about naturopathic physicians as part of their team. We're not the complete solution for everyone, but we absolutely have a unique skill set and we should be the, a part of the team. And that, you know, that has to happen top down. We have to get insurers to cover it and all that. So advocacy is really important on that front. Uh, but I also understand that as medicine evolves and as integrative medicine evolves, we need to make sure that naturopathic physicians have a seat at the table. We need to make sure that when these conversations are being had with, again, insurance companies and hospital systems, and as medicine evolves to incorporate things like technology, our doctors are evolving with that, still staying true to our roots and to our naturopathic philosophy, which is what really gives us our strength and is what allows us um, to offer so much to our patients in a personalized way. Um, I understood that for that all to happen, those two paths, naturopathic medicine being a household name and us having a seat at the table, we need strong institutional support for the profession, right? We can't expect grassroots efforts to do everything, right? You're doing incredible work. You're probably spreading naturopathic medicine uh, more than anyone I know because you have this audience and you have a really strong message that you're reaching. Um, what we also need is for people, uh, when they hear about naturopathic medicine on, on your show, to then find a place to, to, take their, um, to take their understanding to a different level, right? And so a lot of people, I'm sure you get people who reach out, how do I become a naturopathic Always. physician? Mm -hmm. All the time. That's that we have organizations in place um, to make that happen. We also have the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians that has a seat at that table in Washington, D.C., and helps all of our state associations to increase licensure, to increase scope of practice, to make sure that patients can see us because insurance panels in their states will cover it. And so we need these organizations um, to sort of raise that tide mm -hmm. for everyone, but also to be a strong backbone so that when medicine evolves, we evolve with it. Um, and so that's been my mission to to make sure that um, I'm a part of that because it feels bigger than me and you and bigger than all of us, right? If naturopathic medicine um, accomplishes and, and sort of meets its potential, we're going to change healthcare in this country. Yeah. So we have to. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. That's why I went into it and not, you know, after dental school going to allopathic medical school because yeah. I saw a bigger picture. Um, I was not happy with the model that we follow conventionally. And I believe that we could do more, especially when learning about the tenets of our medicine. Um, so would you say now more than ever, there's more interest into this mm. holistic model? Because I would say yes. When we were in school, yes, it was growing. But then coming out of school, especially through social media, mm -hmm. you know, you can see the interest, how many people follow these type of accounts and how many people want to learn more or people asking hey where can i get you know you have nurses dietitians nutritionists going hey where can i get further education medical doctors hey where do i get further medication i mean uh education what do i do uh so do you see that there's more of a demand for this uh growth or, or finding these type of doctors yeah i think so i think it also depends on where you are I know you spend most of your days in California, and, oh, yeah. and there's much more, and there has been for decades, much more awareness of these approaches to the body. Um, in New York City, it's certainly growing. And then, um, unfortunately, right now, in most places, we're reaching people who can afford to see us because the, the model that we work in, where we spend time with people and hear their story, doesn't fit into a 15-minute visit. We need to spend time with people, hour and a half on a first visit, an hour on those follow-ups. Um, and so most often people are coming in who can afford to see us. And so there's certainly a rise in that. 
and that level what we need to do as as a profession is is ensure that we have access to everyone mm. that everyone can see a naturopathic physician um, if they'd like to and, and really that's um i think that's the next evolution of, of the work that we need to be doing. yeah it is it's hard to work with insurance man like you know we there's no way we can do what we do in 15 20 even 30 minutes especially on the first visit and every follow-up it's not designed that way and and unfortunately i had to turn down many people i'm like i don't take insurance i'm sorry like yeah. i wish i can help and you do that part of you right like that part that wants to help everyone that's that's sort of difficult do you see that changing it's going to be a slow um it's going to be a slow go if you, you know uh, most people have heard of dean ornish and his programs it took him like 13 years to get medicare inclusion so we're you know we're working on it with his name recognition separately not yeah. involved with Dr. Ornish, but um, it's a slow go. Most of these federal initiatives take time, mm. um, but we're working on it. You know, everyone who's interested in naturopathic medicine should know that, you know, I, th I think our biggest strength is the fact that um, the work that we do matters. The work mm. that we do is real, and people have experienced real healing. Mm -hmm. And so my personal opinion is there's no way that tide will be stopped. Mm -mm. It's a matter of time. Um, and we certainly need concerted efforts and we need strong leadership for the next couple of, you know, decades probably. Um, so I do see it changing. Um, I also see that there's increased consumer demand across the board. People are interested in, in eating new ways and, you know, there's, everyone's gluten-free and dairy-free. And, and, and these are sort of entry points. Not everyone should be gluten-free, certainly. Mm -hmm. And it's, there's a lot of marketing there. Like they're putting gluten-free gluten on ketchup bottles yeah, and yeah, water. Yeah. yeah, tomatoes never had gluten. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a marketing side of it, but the, the benefit of that is it increases people's awareness of what it is that they're putting into their bodies. And there's no one who's better than a naturopathic physician to help guide you as a primary care level provider into what it is that you should be putting into your body, the thoughts, you, should, you know, the mind-body medicine aspect. Yeah. Um, so it's inevitable. I guess. Yeah, it is inevitable, especially when everyone's catching wind. Oh my God, you know, my aunt, had this now she doesn't I don't she's been having it for years I mean how many times have you heard the story they've been on this medication for years or they've been going to this doctor for years mm -hmm. and then after 15 years of that they come two years one year six months and their things reversal of their yeah. symptoms or disease um, there's no way that you can deny the power of that so let's say I am Joe bubblegum wanting to learn about where I can find a naturopathic doctor yeah. and I live in Ohio what is that where do I find one a, a reputable one too because are there are there non-reputable ones because here's here's where a lot of the issue comes up especially in different fields and and just people in general they go well I, well I thought I was seeing a naturopath or naturopathic doctor what can you speak on that yeah that's a great question um, you know I mentioned this idea that there's increased consumer demand alongside that is increased consumer confusion in the states where naturopathic physicians are not licensed we also don't have title protection. So anyone can call themselves a naturopath, a traditional naturopath, and there's value in that, right? There's value in health coaching. Mm -hmm. There's value in helping people change their diets. But people need to understand that when they're going to someone who's a licensable or licensed naturopathic physician, they went to a four-year medical school, not an online program, um, not a couple of weekend courses, nothing mm -hmm. like that. Um, and they know how to help them as a bridge, right, to, to give them the conventional care. If someone comes in with chest pain, they need to go get an EKG and make sure they're not having a heart attack. Mm -hmm. But you need to have the medical training to understand how to spot that. And so um, it's important that you're, you're seeing a naturopathic doctor, depending on the state, or a naturopathic physician who has gone to an accredited naturopathic medical school. And so the first question is, how do we figure out if they went to an accredited naturopathic medical school? Well, there's something called CNME accreditation. That doesn't matter, but if you go um, to the AANMC, the association, the Association of Accredited Naturopathic Medical Colleges, or I think their Instagram handle is the AANMC, mm -hmm. you can find which naturopathic medical schools in the United States and in Canada are actually licensable and accredited. To find a provider, the way you'll know for sure that everyone has gone to an accredited medical school is if you go on naturopathic.org, we have on the top right a find an ND function, and you put in your zip code, if you're in Ohio, wherever you are, and you get a, a, a physician-level provider who has gone to a four-year medical school who's completed the necessary training to understand your health from that holistic and comprehensive perspective. Okay. Um, so, so there's a lot of you know Google searches, and there's the ND this and naturopathic that. Call naturopathic.org because you know for a fact that that is where... Um, they have to be accredited. That's where they've been, yeah. Yeah, and that's the, that's the site that I give everyone. So, um, But if you are looking for one, ladies and gentlemen, please just go on those websites to find out if you're going to someone legitimate, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. who, if you're paying your hard-earned money, you want to make sure you're getting someone who's trained in that manner. And, and I'll say just as one more example, um, sometimes if you're in a large state where there's not a lot of NDs, it might be helpful to also find the state association that is an AANP affiliate. The American Association of Naturopathic Physicians is our federal national arm. And then every state, like in New York, it's the New York Association of Naturopathic Physicians, mm-hmm. org, and you put in your zip code there, and it, there might be a slightly different search, but they really should speak to each other. Cool. Yeah. Okay, great, great, great. So uh, what are you going to do now? What are you, mm-hmm. any other plans? I know you're working on the tribe thing. Um, anything else? Are you writing a book or something like this? We, ne- <laughs> we need one from you, you know. I am writing a book, actually. The, the This idea that, you know, the, I mentioned the 40% of people who have, um, bone on bone, who have no pain at all, and 15% of people who have pain but normal knee spacing. Um, what is it about the you know the the way they think about their pain and their physical body, their genetics, their inflammatory pathways, the way they sleep, the way they move that predisposes them and protects them? And the language I'm using is that helps them to be pain proof. Hmm. And so that book is is forthcoming, pain proof. You know, find it on Amazon in a couple of years. <laughs> in a couple of years. Okay, so it's, we'll be it's waiting for that. Written, but we'll, you and, know. and where are you working? What's the name of the place? Inner Source Health. Inner so Source if Health. you go on InnerSourceHealth.com, we have offices in New York City, right in Manhattan, and in Huntington, Long Island, and some presence in Connecticut as well. Do you have a website? Um, so, so my personal website is drkochko.com, drkochko.com, and then you can find me on all the Instagram. I've learned from you how to do that. So it's <laughs> and uh, you've been active, and I like that. I'm, so I'm we need more of that. Trying to be active. It's dr.kochko, K-A-C-H-K-O. Beautiful. Um, right on Instagram, yeah. Okay, look at this. We've graduated, what, how many years ago? Five? Five years. Five years ago, and we're already doing some big things. So yeah. I'm really happy to have you here. Did you ever think we'd be sitting and doing this? I just, I'm thrilled I didn't have to fly to L.A. for this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I caught you in New, in New York. Thanks for coming to New York, yeah. so thank you for coming in, Rob. I really appreciate you. And, uh, yeah, we hope to have you back next time. Cool. All right. All right, what an amazing guest good friend of mine. I really hope that he was able to bring you some light on different topics. Rob is a wonderful doctor and I'm a big fan of his. So there you go. That's a show. I promise you we're coming with fire next show and the one after that and the one after that and the one after that. So thank you for supporting the show, rating, reviewing, subscribing, giving us loves, telling your friends, telling your auntie, telling your grandmama, everyone. I appreciate you all. Much love.